Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson, co-host of CBS This Morning. The president's study material stacked as high as a standard mailbox, towering to about four feet. It contained historical analysis, CIA maps and theories, State Department communiques, cables and commentary, and the 500 pages of notes from his national security advisor, a former Harvard professor who wrote to the president, your meetings with the Chinese will be totally unlike any other experience you have had. The president consumed the mountain of information for weeks and carried it on the plane with him for his flight across the globe, like an actor trying to conform to a role. But instead of trying to understand how to play Don Corleone, the star of The Godfather, which would come out later that year in 1972, he was trying to get into the head of his interlocutors. He'd started his homework before he was even in office, or rather, when he was between offices, when he was a loser in exile. Nobody thought he'd be in office again. He didn't think he'd be in office again. But nevertheless, in those wilderness years, he folded himself into the seats of airplanes on transatlantic flights, because even as a civilian, he was driven to understand the world. In his own private stash of briefing materials, the president collected page after page of yellow legal paper, curled from his heavy pressing of the pen with the urgency of a prisoner arguing for parole. It was the way he ordered his thoughts about the sealed-off country of China. We were embarking, Richard Nixon later wrote in his memoirs, upon a voyage of philosophical discovery as uncertain and in some respects as perilous as the voyages of geographical discovery of a much earlier time period. But the research material the president perused was not entirely the dry millet of international affairs. His studies also included poetry, a set of lines he had committed to memory. And those lines were, It is the bitter sacrifice that strengthens our firm resolve and which gives us the courage to dare to change heaven and skies, to change the sun, and to make a new world. Not exactly Wordsworth. The lines were dog-bone dry and cold like a zinc milk box, but the president wasn't looking to wander lonely as a cloud. He was meeting with the chairman of the People's Republic of China, Mao Zedong, who was the author of that brutalist dry boot bit of verse. But if President Nixon recited Mao's words back to him, perhaps Mao would join him in reaching for that poetry's final promise, to change the sun and to make a new world. Premier Chou Enlai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China at an appropriate date before May 1972. President Nixon has accepted the invitation with pleasure. The president's plane landed around 11.32 a.m. local time on Monday, February 21st, 1972. In Washington, it was 13 hours earlier, 8.32 p.m., Sunday, February 20th. President Nixon stepped off the Spirit of 76, that's the name he'd given his aircraft, in order to establish his connection to the founders in 1776 and also to celebrate the country's coming bicentennial in 1976. And you knew he was flying the Spirit of 76 because the slogan was written just below the pilot's window on Air Force One. The president placed his wingtips on the ground in Peking, and he was greeted by the sound of one hand clapping, or I should say, no hands clapping. It was very quiet. That's affirmative, no crowd, a Secret Service man had radioed, according to Richard Reeves' book, President Nixon Alone in the White House. Here's how William Manchester wrote it up in The Glory and the Dream. 
America's peripatetic 37th president had greeted the rulers of Romania, Pakistan, Yugoslavia, Spain, Canada, Brazil, Australia, Japan, India, Ireland, Italy, Germany, Belgium, France, Britain, Austria, and the Vatican. Always there had been crowds. Here, there were none. The president was greeted not by Mao, but instead Premier Zhou Enlai. Also, two dozen officials and some of their assistants plus a 350-man honor guard. The president descended the stairs to the quiet reception with his wife, Pat. Right beside him, she wore a bright red coat chosen specifically to make a statement for the U.S. cameras, which were carrying the arrival in China live across the entire country. Against the gray, olive taupe, and sea of drab Chinese officials greeting the president, Pat Nixon stood out. As Nixon reached the second-to-last stair, his hand extended. His fingers splayed like he was trying to palm a basketball. He was telegraphing his handshake with Joe. It was no ordinary handshake. The premier, Joe Enlai, had often mentioned to Henry Kissinger, Nixon's national security advisor, the day in 1954 in Geneva during the conferences that ended the French War in Indochina when Secretary of State John Foster Dulles had refused to shake his hand. I knew that Joe had been deeply insulted by Foster Dulles' refusal to shake hands with him at the Geneva Conference in 1954, Nixon later wrote. When I reached the bottom step, therefore, I made a point of extending my hand as I walked toward him. When our hands met, one era ended and another began. Joe got the message and later in the trip told Nixon, today we shook hands, but John Foster Dulles didn't want to do that. When you think about President Trump and uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, and all the handshaking and the back slapping and the touching and, the, and all of the body language. We think it's silly. But here we see a way in which uh, where diplomacy is concerned, these simple gestures can carry all of this weight. But while it was not an ordinary handshake between President Nixon and Zhou Enlai, the Chinese premier, it may very well have been a very ordinary head handshake. In the preparation guide book that was prepared for the Nixon party ahead of the trip, in the personal contacts section, when talking about how Americans and Chinese should interact, it read, you will find their handshakes to be wet fish. They have not taken very much to the habit of a firm grip as an expression of manhood. The guide book also advised the president not to get too touchy-feely. Number eight on the itemized etiquette list read, such physical expressions of familiarity used by Americans as backslapping are offensive to the Chinese. Because they are accustomed to living in dense housing arrangements, physical privacy is something they value. Avoid physical contact except handshaking, which they have come to accept. Nixon was escorted by Joe to a position of honor to hear a Chinese military band play the Star Spangled Banner and China's national anthem. Mrs. Nixon and the official party behind him, they then walked and reviewed a contingent of Chinese troops. Looming over the entire visit, though, was a large billboard that Nixon could see, which read, in English, people of oppressed nations the world over unite. The ceremony lasted about 20 minutes. That's it. Nixon and the premier thereupon climbed into large black Chinese-made red-flagged limousines and buzzed off. As one L.A. Times reporter wrote of the scene, for two decades, we all but blacked out the Chinese, their culture, sophistication, creativeness, fears, hopes, beliefs. Now the spell is broken, and we reach out eagerly to make amends in an almost panicked excess of goodwill and admiration. 
Usually presidents are greeted with every hazuka and pontoozle in town, but that didn't happen at the airport, and it certainly there was not a whisper of a kazoo on the ride into town. The streets were empty, except for a few actors portraying real people. According to Reeves, the real pedestrians and cyclists were being held behind barricades. In the limousine with curtained windows, Joe thanked Nixon. Your handshake came over the vastest ocean in the world, 25 years of no communication. In the city, low-key greetings were continued. And there were also anti-American jibes, slogans on display in the square, poked at their visitor from the world of capitalism. One read, we warmly hail the great victories of the Indo-Chinese peoples in their war against U.S. imperialism and for national salvation. Another slogan expressed support for Arabs, quote, in their struggle against U.S. imperialism and Zionism. The Washington Post wrote at the time, the obvious lack of fanfare and public enthusiasm stood in sharp contrast to receptions the Chinese had accorded to other foreign visitors, such as Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia, who was greeted by 300,000 persons. From the L.A. Times piece headline, Nixon and Joe begin historic meeting. Perhaps at no time in history has an American president been greeted with such silence. It seemed to make more of an impact if it had been thousands applauding and cheering. North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un reportedly wants what has been called a, quote, Nixon goes to China moment for his meeting with Donald Trump, which is scheduled for the 12th of June, 2018. The Korean dictator wants to think of himself as having the stature of a world power like China, the one it did 46 years ago, meeting the American president as an equal. But what exactly was the Nixon goes to China moment? Well, it was a turning point in American and world history. Historian Margaret McMillan's book about the meeting, which informs this podcast, identifies the stakes. It's called Nixon and Mao, The Week That Changed the World. It was, after all, the first ever visit of a sitting president to China and end the long standoff where neither country had recognized the other since the communists took over China in 1949. It was an earthquake in the Cold War landscape. It meant that the Eastern Bloc no longer stood firm against the West. Richard Nixon, whose China visit was the culmination of a long-considered policy, also had this vision of himself as a great man, and the visit equaled that self-image. So it's central to the story of Richard Nixon and his presidency. It was worth the grief for Nixon that he caught from his own party and the possible humiliating result that would happen if the if the meeting went south it was worth that risk as nixon once told an interviewer the mark of a leader quote is whether he can give history a nudge so we have this as a crucial turning point moment in geopolitical affairs in the struggle of the post-world war ii period between capitalism and communism and we then also have it as a central point the other central point in the nixon presidency other than watergate which connects to Nixon's uh, vision of himself as a as a global changing leader, which goes, of course, to the presidency, because the foreign affairs sphere in which a president operates is the one in which he has the most direct power and the most chance to change the lives of people on the planet. Here's what the U.S. had to gain, according to the Washington Post at the time. A reconciliation with Peking could make it easier for Nixon to justify an American withdrawal from Vietnam, seeming to remove the Chinese threat that originally served as the rationale for the U.S. commitment. Plus, an accommodation with China could also facilitate the eventual neutralization of Southeast Asia, thereby lowering the U.S. profile in the Far East in accordance with the Nixon Doctrine. Nixon defined his doctrine as the United States would assist in the defense and developments of allies and friends, but would not undertake all the defense of the free nations of the world. So 
that meant each nation was in in charge of its own security and that the United States would act as a as an umbrella when requested, but not engage in in Korean and Vietnam style wars everywhere. The New York Times gave us an update at the time of the wars it was taking place in Vietnam. This is at the time of the Nixon visit. There are four million pounds of bombs still being dropped daily. The forests destroyed by chemical agents so deadly, we are now worried about disposing of the surplus, the surplus that being of that chemical agent, which was so dangerous. The 100,000 casualties and refugees caused by American bombing are happening every month, said the New York Times. The Chinese leadership, for its part, which had worked hard to make China the center of the world, uh, center of world revolution, welcomed the leader of the world's greatest capitalist nation, which was quite a surprise. Now, the reason China was doing this is that the relationship promised access to technology and vital strategic information, but it also would help undermine the U.S. support for Chiang Kai-shek and his regime in Taiwan. China was also looking to counterbalance potential enemies in Japan and the Soviet Union. Chiang Kai-shek's regime, of course, in Taiwan, the nationalists who had battled with the Chinese, uh, the communists and lost. The U.S., of course, very strong supporters for Taiwan. The worry in China was always that the U.S. was supporting Taiwan for an eventual somehow overthrow of the mainland communists. And so uh, an arrangement or an agreement between the communists and the U.S. Would, would lessen the chance that Taiwan would come calling with U.S. backing. The Soviets, of course, did not like the idea of Nixon visiting China. Why is Nixon in Peking? It's terrible, terrible, asked a Russian scientist in a piece, uh, a Christian Science Monitor piece. How can you Americans be making friends with such a barbaric country? How can you come to terms with such a tyranny, said another Soviet intellectual interviewed in this piece in the Christian Science Monitor. They chop off the hands of piano players. They have drowned the country in Maoist propaganda and turned 800 million people into robots. Well, that wasn't nice of China's comrades in arms in the communist struggle from Moscow. China's fall to the communists in 1949 was a severe blow in the titanic struggle between the capitalist West and the collectivists. The who lost China debate became a Republican cudgel in political fights. Republicans claiming that uh, they were going to be tougher on the Reds and the Democrats were weak and not protecting America, having lost China during the Democratic Truman administration. The American-Chinese hostility, of course, broke out into the very open in the Korean War. That was the first hot war of the Cold War. Chinese and American soldiers actually shooting at and killing each other. And during that conflict, the Chinese schoolchildren were raised on uh, American antipathy. They threw beanbags at Uncle Sam, whose long fangs dripped innocent blood. And the Chinese streets and squares carried slogans of hatred and resistance of the kind that had met Nixon when he arrived in Tiananmen Square. The United States, for its part, of course, was backing those Taiwanese uh, nationalists. And also the U.S. had been blocking China from going to the United Nations or from joining other international bodies. And at the Olympics, the only Chinese athletes that were allowed to compete were those from Taiwan. So that was the state of affairs after the 1949 revolution. Now, Mao launched the Cultural Revolution, where the intellectuals and those connected with the old regime were swept away or sent to re-education camp. The country essentially virtually ceased to have a foreign policy at all. Its diplomats were summoned home to be cleansed of their imperfections. And, of course, that uh, during the Vietnam War, these, exacer- these tensions were exacerbated because China could not engage in diplomacy with America while, it was, while America was doing what it was doing to a communist ally. 
And so we think of this, and this zesty hatred for America was continuing right up until the time that Nixon came to visit. There's a Reuters story by James Pringle on January 20th, 1972, and it read, Performers at a theater in central Shanghai today shouted, Kill, 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 as they fired rifles at an effigy of Uncle Sam with a bullseye sewn on his chest. The audience was told to, quote, bury U.S. imperialism in a sea of people's war. But despite all the chorus of kill, 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 Chinese leaders realized that they could not grow on hatred as a country. Mao realized just how isolated they were in the world. It was also a problem for China that they were getting the business from Russia. There was a series of border clashes during the 60s. Between 65 and 69, Soviet divisions in the area along the border between China and the Soviet Union grew. Those divisions did from about 17 to 27. So... It was in China's interest to have a bulwark against the Soviets. The entire concept of Nixon going to to China, of course, rests not on these warming signals and these motivations for China to warm towards the United States and the United States to warm towards China. But it rests on the idea that President Nixon was politically able to soften the U.S. position towards China because he was a communist slayer. He had, through his campaigns and work on the House Un-American Activities Committee, built a reputation not only for being hard on the collectivist system, but for using softness in others or perceived softness towards the communists as a weapon against his opponents. Returning from World War II, Nixon had unseated a five-term, a popular five-term incumbent as a representative from California's 12th district. And Nixon won through essentially a guilt-by-association campaign against his opponent um, that suggested his opponent was a communist sympathizer. Then once in Congress, Nixon took a leading role on this House Un-American Activities Committee, indefatigably pressing the investigation into the State Department's Alger Hiss, who was accused of being a communist. His aggressive assault against Hiss resulted in this amazing dramatic moment when evidence surfaced that Hiss had in fact passed information to the Soviets. And the dramatic moment was that the proof of this was contained on microfilm that had been hidden in a pumpkin in the backyard of Whitaker Chambers, who was a Time magazine correspondent and communist. Hiss was later convicted of perjury, having essentially lied about whether he had passed these secrets to the communists. Now, Nixon, who had not only worked on the House on american Activities Committee and had worked on Hiss from that position, also, it was later learned when grand jury testimony was released to the public, that Nixon had testified before the grand jury that helped indict Hiss for perjury. And in that testimony, Nixon had made a convincing case to the grand jury that Hiss had lied before Congress. And so uh, when Hiss was convicted, he'd elevated the 35-year-old congressman's stature as a communist hunter. Then in 1950, Nixon defeated former actress Helen Goggin Douglas for a seat in the U.S. Senate. He painted her as a tool of the communists, even printing a, quote, pink sheet that portrayed Douglas as a part of a communist axis. It was this hard-fought campaign that earned him the nickname Tricky Dick, which some people think might apply to his behavior during Watergate. But in fact, Tricky Dick comes from this campaign. And if you're ever wanting entertainment, listen to Nixon describing how he beat Hiss by leaking things to the papers uh, when you want an example of that no-holds-barred street-fighting talent of his. In the 1960 Republican campaign, presidential campaign, Nixon stressed that weakness was death when dealing with the communists. Here's some audio from one of his ads. Our next president must show clearly that America won't stand for being pushed around anywhere in the world. The only answer to communism is a massive offensive for freedom, 
freedom from hunger, from disease, and a victory for the ageless hope of people everywhere, freedom from tyranny. That was the backdrop for Nixon's anti-communism. That was the reputation that made it easier for him to zag and and embrace the communists. It helped solidify him in the Republican Party and get him elected, this anti-communist posture. It helped him get elected in 1968. A, a little aside about the power of the communist charge and the evolution of political parties. In the 1968 presidential election, Nixon's vice presidential candidate, Agnew, charged that the Democratic nominee, Hubert Humphrey, was soft on communism. But he had to back down, Agnew did, because Republican leaders shamed him. Republican leader Everett Dirksen in the Senate, the Republican leader of the Senate, and Republican Representative Jerry Ford, Gerald Ford, future president, said that they knew of no evidence to support the Agnew charge quaint that you would want evidence to support a political charge, but even more quaint that the leaders of a party would rebuke the nominee, the vice presidential nominee of the party for stepping out of line, for not keeping a norm, for hitting below the belt. But when it came to China, it's interesting. Nixon was undergoing a long reappraisal, and it goes back to the point that I made at the beginning about all those briefing papers. He was obsessed with the big currents of foreign affairs and his place guiding the ship of state in those currents. He made his first stab at trying to get into China in 1960 as Eisenhower's vice president. His motives were not simply political. Mr. Nixon subscribes to the theory that if he can achieve a breakthrough into the forbidden country that holds one-fourth of the Earth's people, his image will be so gigantic he'll overshadow any stay-at-home Democratic opponent. That was Washington Post columnist George Dixon writing on March 28, 1960 about this possible trip to China by Nixon. Nixon never made the trip because two Democratic senators who wanted to go to China on a fact-finding mission said they would, quote, tear the roof off if the State Department let Nixon go solely for political purposes. So from 62 to 68, Nixon's in the wilderness. Those are his wilderness years. He's a private citizen holding no political office, but he traveled extensively abroad, observing conditions and and talking with leaders, experts, and ordinary citizens. He noticed that a lot of people he visited were talking about the emerging importance of China on the world stage. And the idea, which was almost unthinkable at the time, that the United States should have some kind of relationship with China. Instead of isolating it, on the, on one of Nixon's trips, he stopped in Singapore where he met with the prime minister, Lee Kuan Yew. In that meeting, he made notes to himself, and in the notes of the conversation, they included several sections dealing with China, and here are the bullet points. One, a mistake of U.S. to isolate them, them being China. Two, now must establish contact, but admits they may turn it down at first. This is Yu giving Nixon uh, advice about how to improve situation with China. You simply make clear the doors open at your end and let them come to you. That was the strategy as the prime minister of Singapore was advising Nixon when he's a private citizen. These travels culminated in an October 1967 article for Foreign Affairs laying out Nixon's vision for China. Remember, he's a civilian at this point. As vice president in 53 and 58, he had visited China. And in the 1960s, he took two trips to Asia, Asia after Vietnam. The Foreign Affairs article was written after that second trip to Asia. Nixon, it was interesting as a, as a writer. He was ex- an exhaustive and thorough writer. He wrote pages and pages and pages on these legal papers. And then he dictated from those pages. He read a draft of his, of his whatever he was trying to write into a dictaphone, which then went on for pages and pages and pages. And he was very focused on style and structure and audience. Two different kinds of audience, the intellectuals, the habitual readers of foreign affairs, but then also the general reader. 
On this piece he wrote for Foreign Affairs, uh, Asia after Vietnam, he collaborated with Ray Price. And his notes on the first draft that Price had written from all those yellow legal pages, his notes to, to Price about, about the first draft went on for 17 pages. There is a great exhibit in the Nixon Library and Foundation outlining Nixon's work on this article and the role it played in his emerging thinking. And this is in 67, of course. It's five years before he actually goes to China. Again, long studied preparatory, deep interest in this topic. Anyway, five years before the process and his careful evolution is thinking and about all that, it's worth checking out the Nixon Library and Foundation uh, exhibit. So there is a striking phrase from the article in 1967 that also appeared in Nixon's first inaugural address. And here's the phrase. Taking the long view, we simply cannot afford to leave China forever outside the family of nations, there to nurture its fantasies, cherish its hates, and threaten its neighbors. There is no place on this small planet for a billion of its potentially most able people to live in angry isolation. Here is what Nixon told his collaborator, Price, about the thrust of what he was trying to do in the China section in these remarks from the 1967 article in Foreign Affairs called Asia After Vietnam. This is Nixon in his notes to Price. The whole thrust of this section on China should be that I am taking a hard line at the present, but in the long range that I recognize the absolute necessity of a dialogue with China and that I reject completely the idea of the Soviet-U.S. alliance, which would alienate China forever. The biggest signals, though, that Nixon would send. So just to reiterate that line about um, about China taking the long view, we simply cannot afford to leave China forever. That is not only in the Asia after Vietnam article in 1967, but it's also in his inaugural address in 1969. So he's he takes what he wrote as a civilian and based on opening that door, that notion of door opening from Singapore's prime minister, Lee Wan Yu. And then he literally opens the door in that inaugural address. Okay, but the biggest signals that were sent from Nixon to China and 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 warming that was going on in China that no one knew about in the time are two great and crucial fascinating episodes in 1969. Okay, in March of 69, the Soviets and the Chinese are having these cross-border clashes, and it gets heated. It gets really bad. That gunfire you just heard is from uh, footagefile.net. It's a um, it's a documentary on these on this Soviet invasion into China. And by August '69, there were rumors of an all-out war between the two most communist, uh, two most powerful world communist states, and the war might include the use of nuclear weapons. So Mao's second in command ordered 940,000 soldiers, 4,000 planes, and 600 vessels to scatter from their bases in anticipation of a possible nuclear attack. They transferred major archives from Beijing into the southwest where they could be protected. And Mao ordered the digging of tunnels against attack. Then at around this time, Mao called his personal physician and presented him with a problem. Think about this, said Mao. We have the Soviet Union to the north and the west, India to the south and Japan to the east. If all of our enemies were to unite, attacking us from the north, south, east and west, what do you think we should do? His physician confessed that he did not have a clue about what they should do. Think again, Mao told him. Beyond Japan is the United States. Didn't our ancestors counsel negotiating with faraway countries while fighting those that are near? His physician was shocked, recalling the long history of Sino-American hostility. How could we negotiate with the United States? Mao replied, the United States and the Soviet Union are different. America's new president, Richard Nixon, is a longtime rightist a leader of the anti-communists there. 
I like to deal with rightists. They say what they really think, not like the leftists who say one thing and mean another. Meanwhile, back in D.C., a mid-level Soviet embassy official posed a question to a State Department counterpart over lunch. What might the American response be if the Soviet Union were to attack Chinese nuclear facilities? This question, of course, was passed through a Soviet embassy official, but it came from Moscow. This, by the way, is coming from John Lewis Gaddis's book, The Cold War, A New History. So it came from Moscow, and the State Department official passed it up the chain of line, which made its way all the way to the president. Nixon had told his cabinet uh, uh, that it could, that the United States could not let China be, quote-unquote, smashed in a Sino-Soviet war. And so the word was sent back that if the Soviets made a nuclear attack on the Chinese, the Americans would attack the Soviet Union in response to that attack. It was a major event in American foreign policy, Henry Kissinger later commented. When a president declared that we had a strategic interest in the survival of a major communist country, long an enemy, and with which we had no contact. This warming that I've just been describing all culminated in a surprise press conference on July 15, 1971. Good evening. I have requested this television time tonight to announce a major development in our efforts to build a lasting peace in the world. As I have pointed out on a number of occasions over the past three years, there can be no stable and enduring peace without the participation of the People's Republic of China and its 750 million people. That is why I have undertaken initiatives in several areas to open the door for more normal relations between our two countries. It was a stunning announcement that would lead to domestic upheaval, secret diplomacy, and ultimately a highly choreographed visit to the communist mainland. As the Chinese premier, Zhou Enlai, told Henry Kissinger during one of their secret meetings, once the announcement is made, it will shake the world, which won't be able to sleep. We'll pick up with part two of the Nixon Goes to China story in the next edition of Whistle Stop, which will be just one week away, not the normal two-week hiatus. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Also, thanks, many thanks, to Elizabeth Hinson, our West Coast Research Sorting Coordinator and altogether tremendous help. Also, thanks to Dustin Gervais and everyone at CBS Radio who made the recording of this possible, as they always do. And special thanks to Screen News Digest for some of that sound from Nixon's trip. And thanks to all of you out there for listening. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a week, yes, just one week, with the second episode of Nixon Goes to China. Mm-hmm.